From Georgetown University, this is Seeking Peace. I'm Alain Verveer, and this is Aweng Adechul. I was raised by a soldier. My father was in the Army ever since I could remember, since I was born. His whole life was spent on the battlefield. And until his last few years of life, I didn't never really sat down and asked, like, how do you feel, you know, like, and requested to really go into his mind and where his well-being was at. Aweng Adechul was born in a Kenyan refugee camp. As a child, she immigrated with her family to Australia, where she was scouted by a modeling agency. Today, at age 22, she is a world-famous model who advocates for mental health and equality, especially for refugee girls. We reached her at her home in London to speak with her about her memories as a refugee and the importance of mental health care for girls who have lived in conflict zones as she did. She also shares highlights from her modeling career, including her experience in Beyonce's new film, Black is King. So, Awang, it's so lovely to have you with us for this conversation. You were born in the Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya after your parents fled the Sudanese Civil War. You left the camp when you were about seven. But do you have any recollections of life in the camp? Yeah, I actually do. I am known for my good memory (laughs) Um, in my family. I remember everything. I remember the place we lived in. I remember the the setup of the camp. I remember the trees. I remember the wells. I remember the animals. Like, I remember everything. And I'm currently practicing sketching and painting because I actually want to be able to visualize everything that I know and I can see in my head and I want to put into paper on a canvas. So I'm actually working on like being able to show people the life that I lived painted by me in a way. So you had your early years in the camp uh, and then you moved to Australia, I understand. Uh, Your dad, of course, stayed behind to fight on the South Sudan's battlefield. But When you moved to Australia, was it a brand new experience and you left those memories behind? Or uh, how was the the next stage of your life, so to speak? I feel like leaving from Kenya at seven, we really didn't have a um, perspective of where we were going because in our language, countries don't have names per se. Like we just say, which means the other side or the other part of the world. We never really identify where. So the whole time we really didn't think we were going to Australia. We thought we were going to America. So we had, um, ironically, had prepared for winter season. So we arrived around this time in 2006, and it was obviously starting to become winter in the United States, but it was going to summer in Australia. So we were prepared for an American landing, um, but we ended up in Australia, and that was first off getting off the plane and we're in coats like winter coats and that was just a shock itself and then the environment and the place was like it was just a whole whirlpool like I was crying at the airport because in our language the um, translation of train is actually onion and I was really confused as to why we're going to an onion and why is it moving so fast so I had a lot of like personal shocks um it was very hard for me to like 
accustom myself to this new place and this new world. Uh, it took me a while. <laughs> it took me a long time to get used to just everything. I refused to eat. I refused to speak. I was basically on strike because I'm just like, I don't understand where I'm at. And no one ever explained it. They just were like, this is better for your future. And that's just it. Nothing else was really explained. But I, you know, put my big girl shoes on, learned language, tried to accustom myself to the new culture and everything. But it was really hard. Like, it was really hard. Well, you clearly did put your big girl shoes on. And I know that you had a passion for higher education, which has clearly stayed with you as well. But in order to um, fulfill your aspirations, you worked really hard uh, at several jobs, saving, 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 in order to be able to go to college one day. I understand you were actually working at McDonald's when you were scouted for a modeling job. And of course, we know you for many things, but certainly your modeling career has become a really extraordinary. So how, how did how did all of that happen? And then how have you been able to uh, balance your, what now is a very successful modeling career with your passion for higher education? I've always wanted to be an actress. That's the one thing that I've always wanted to do ever since I learned English. I started watching films. I started watching TV shows. I started studying the acting world, entertainment industry specifically. So I was doing auditions at like 15, 13, 14, like just little cute auditions. Um, we never thought I'd get anywhere, honestly. <laughs> but um, I was at the same time trying to still have a foot in the acting industry and a foot in like just life really like working and personal life and everything so I was I had a lot on my plate I would say I was working probably four jobs one time and then also doing high school and obviously with high school you have the final exams to get into college and everything so I was at a very odd busy place and I was working at McDonald's and then someone came up and was like I would love for you to join my modeling agency and I was like I'm really busy I'm really busy right now but I'll give it a shot so I went back home a week later I emailed went in for headshots and then ended up in Paris and that was just it so you were passionate about your new work you were passionate about higher education much of that has clearly stayed with you but I know another area um, that you are quite uh, strong feel very strongly about is mental health support for refugees and girls in particular. Why is this a cause that you feel so deeply about? For me, I just feel like mental health is so important in every aspect. Everybody, everyday people, no matter who you are, should be doing therapy. I feel like being able to release what's on your mind to a non-biased person who's not in any way attached to your life, it kind of gives you room to explore the other perspective without being gaslighted, without feeling as if you're a burden. And I just feel like as a kid, if I had that at the camp, if I had people to speak to outside of my immediate family that I saw every single day, every hour of the day, it would have made me understand the complexity of where I'm at and what's going on in the world. Really, it was just like there was never someone sitting down and explaining like, yes, your feelings are valid. There was no validation to my confusion with where I was at in life, you know? And I just feel like refugees 
and young girls and everybody really deserve to have someone that has an experience with the world and with the outside world to give them validation for their existence like what's happening in your life right now it's not an only one person thing it happens to many people and here are steps to take to kind of like handle or deal with it you know mental health wise i would say well i think it's so laudable that you remembered so well those adjustments you had to make when you got to australia and now much of that understanding and those experiences permeate you're relating that to other refugees particularly girls and this is not an issue we often think about when we talk about the plight of refugees, the mental health support. I know that you're involved in organizations like War Child and Children in Conflict. Why is that so continually important for you? Their work is mainly refugees and the mental health of refugees and giving refugees a space and things they need, the necessities really. But their main, main goal is the mental health well-being of refugees. And obviously, I was raised by a soldier. My father was in the army ever since I could remember, since I was born. He's always, his whole life was spent on the battlefield. And until his last few years of life, I didn't never really sat down and asked, like, how do you feel? You know, like somebody that had to fight since the age of 13, 12, you know, in a battle that he probably didn't understand or couldn't even conceptualize. It's like no one has ever really sat down and asked him, like, well, how are you doing? How is your mental health? No one had ever asked him that. And me being 16, curious as a cat, basically sat my father down and requested to really go into his mind and where his well-being was at. And I realized there is turmoil with war. Um, there is turmoil with having to choose between your family and the country that you, you know, will die for. So it kind of opened my eyes a bit more to be conscious of the mental state of not one soldiers only, two families of soldiers, mothers and wives of soldiers, to really just, things happen at war that have never been spoken about, that never get spoken about. And I just wanted to open the dialogue with him before he passed away, and I did. And that kind of left me in a space of content. Like, at least, I mean, I didn't get to get him a therapist in this lifetime, but I did allow the room for me to help any other child soldiers in the future. You know this so well, but the number of refugees has doubled over the past decade. We are at historic numbers. And just contemplating that, you know, one can imagine uh, how stressed so many are, and particularly those girls, in situations that you can relate to from your own life uh, and the needs that they have in terms of their ability to cope and understand what's happening to them and to be... Um, healthy mentally as well as physically. I, I know that you're also a uh, proud member of the LGBT community. Uh, you have married your partner and you clearly are aware of challenges and discrimination facing the community worldwide. What can be done better to promote equality? When it comes to that, in a perfect world, we all just accept each other and move along, <laughs> but we don't live in a 
even close to perfect world right now. A lot of uh, terrible things have happened to the LGBT community and I just feel like personally I've been very much um, confused, angry and saddened. Like I just feel like I've been going through the like five steps of grieving really because you want to believe that we've grown as a society, we're at a place where your sexuality, your gender, your pronouns shouldn't be an issue anymore, but it is. So what do you do about that? My biggest plan would be, let's just accept each other. Let's recognize that there are faults when it comes to the acceptance of LGBTs and especially the lives of LGBT, you know? And with that, the first step is to know that there needs to be a conversation well, I think that is the bottom line. Uh, it's all about how we treat each other and respect each other and the humanity of every person. I know it would be truly of interest to many of our listeners to know about your being in Beyonce's film, Black is King. And you were in the film with um, many other prominent Black women creatives, including Naomi Campbell. What was this experience like? This experience really opened my eyes to how many things I can achieve in this lifetime. I literally had to sit back after the shoot. It really reminded me that the sky is a limit, really. And it just reminded me that there are people that believe in the vision and the bigger picture that I have for myself. And to be in the same room as those iconic legends, you know, it really just reminded me that whatever it is, Owen, keep at it. It reminded me that you can come from literally nothing to being in rooms that you never believed you'd ever be in. Um, it was amazing. It was beautiful to be in a room full of love just kind of made me put my dreams into perspective and really just pushed me more. And that was a dream come true. We started this conversation uh, talking about the fact that your family had to flee the civil war in Sudan. And I've heard that um, part of your plans for the future might be uh, getting into politics one day in South Sudan. What are some of your hopes for South Sudan and what role might you want to play there one day? I was studying politics, international relations in my first year of law school, but I have many plans for the future. Let's just say that I'm a big dreamer and I blueprint everything. And I just, like I said, the world is your oyster and you must take it as you want, you know? I've never been to South Sudan. That was kind of quote unquote stolen from me, I would say. I never got to see what home really is because last time my mother was there, she was 15 maybe, she was pregnant with me. Um, ended up in Kenya, from Kenya to Australia. It's just like, I hear about it, I eat the food, I speak the language, but somehow I've never been in a space that I love so very much. And it's just for me, getting there is the first step. <laughs> getting me to go back home is my first step. Well, I, I think it's it's just so heartwarming to hear about that deep feeling inside of you about home, as you call it, and the possibility that you might make a contribution there uh, one day. Has COVID affected you in other ways? Has it affected uh, your ability to uh, work in the ways that you are accustomed? 
I've still been working during COVID. That's the that was the tricky part for me. You know, I always try to do something with my time. Unless I'm sleeping, I'm really doing something with whatever hour, whatever second I have, and that's just the person I am. But with COVID, it's been really, I mean, at the beginning of it, even in April, I had like a huge mental health breakdown and shaved off my head. I um, went into the psych ward. I, like, it was just a mess, really. <laughs> but coming out of that, I was like, you know what? There's so many more things to life than stressing out because the world just seems to have stopped. So I ended up having to take a break, just having to take a two months off and just really sit down and just sit in bed for two months. And it was, it was interesting. You learn a lot about yourself when you're stuck inside for seven months. Um, and when you come out better, I feel like as soon as quarantine was over and I could travel again regularly, I was back to business, uh, bigger business and bigger plans. I just felt like this year really opened my eyes to the fact that there's so many dreams to accomplish and I want to retire at 25 years old. So I have three years and two months <laughs> to get to it, you know, so it's just like, I'm just I really just to come out and really re-put my big girl shoes on. And that's just it, really. Well, it sounds like you you really have traversed this uh, difficult time in, in, in a good way. And I think there's a very powerful message in, in what you have conveyed, which is uh, to really take every moment, use every moment, maximize those moments, and really get to a better place always. Thank you so much, Awang. It has been wonderful to talk to you, to hear about your lessons, lessons you can certainly share with others and have shared now with them. And I wish you well. <laughs> Thank you. Awang turned 22 years old this year, and she's planning to retire from the modeling world by 25 graduating from law school, and starting some new projects back in South Sudan. You can follow the work of Awang at Awang Chul on Instagram. Today's interview was produced by Laura Ubate. If you like what you heard, please share it far and wide. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening app or at SeekingPeacePodcast.com. In our next episode, we will speak with Nobel Peace Prize laureate Dr. Dennis McQuaggy. A surgeon and gynecologist, Dr. McQuaggy has spent over 20 years treating women survivors of rape in the Democratic Republic of Congo. He also supports their reintegration into the community and their quest for justice. Lorsque nous parlons de la réparation, nous avions compris qu'il faut aller plus loin et ne pas penser seulement when we talk about reparations, we have to come to understand that we have to go beyond material compensation, beyond giving a few banknotes or donating material goods to women. 
That's just a small step. But the big step is to implement reparations that ensure that these atrocities perpetrated against women can no longer happen again, so that they aren't repeated against the children that will be born from these women. That's next time on Seeking Peace. The second season of Seeking Peace is a production of Georgetown University's Institute for Women, Peace, and Security and Adonde Media in collaboration with Our Secure Future. I'm your host, Milan Verveer. Thank you for listening. To achieve better security outcomes, women have to be at the center of decision-making, all decision-making. Hi, I'm Sahana Dharmapuri, director of Our Secure Future. Women make the difference. We believe that when women tell their stories, they change the world. We know that diverse voices lead to more inclusive and better solutions for everyone. That's why Our Secure Future supports this season of Seeking Peace. Help us change the world, one story at a time. Listen to what women say about making a more peaceful and secure future.